If that's really what you want, that's really what you do. You have to visualize it. You have to see it. You have to really want that. And then every day prepare and let your preparation become your confidence toward that. And along with that preparation, you have to control what you can and ignore the rest. Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. This is your host, Jim Harshaw Jr. And today I bring you Lindsay Dare Shoop. Ever since I finished my career as a Division I All-American athlete, I longed for not only the clarity of purpose that I had as an athlete, but also the accountability that comes with aspiring for big goals with a team of like-minded people. Then I discovered mastermind groups. Masterminds are small groups of like-minded people who get together either in person or over Skype or just over the phone to provide support, feedback, and advice to other members of the group. So I dove in and I learned all I could about mastermind groups and then I finally launched my own. And the change was instant. I regained the accountability of being part of a group of like-minded, hardworking individuals who hold me to a higher standard. My mastermind group helps me get feedback and advice and even validation when I'm making big, big decisions in my life. And I have clarity and focus and accountability again, just like when I was an athlete. I've now facilitated dozens of high performers in mastermind groups. I'm talking Olympians and MBAs and neurosurgeons and professional athletes and, and entrepreneurs and lots of others. I've taken everything you need to know to start your own mastermind group and I put it into a short 10-page ebook titled The Quick and Easy Guide to Starting Your Own Mastermind Group in 30 Days or Less. Grab a copy of this free ebook by going to jimharshawjr.com slash mastermind. That's jimharshawjr.com slash mastermind. Lindsay is an Olympic gold medal rower, and she happens to be a fellow Wahoo. She went to the University of Virginia, just like myself. We were both All-Americans. She was a few years behind me and, of course, different sports. So we didn't really know each other in school. But, man, I've, I've known her story for a long time. She was an Olympic gold medalist in 2008 in the Beijing Olympics. And coincidentally, she grew up about 15 miles from where I'm at right now. So I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia. She grew up just outside of Charlottesville, went to UVA. I'm good friends with her college rowing coach, Kevin Sauer, who I've known really since I was an undergrad. He's a guy who I respect tremendously, two-time national championship, NCAA championship coach. They have won. My number is going to be a little bit off here. I think 19 of the 20, or, or it's every single ACC championship, but one. Every year that it's ever been held, every year that it's been in existence, they've won the team championship every year except for one. I think it's 19 out of the last 20 years. I could be off by one or two years there. But Kevin's just an amazing individual, coached Lindsay, got her out to try the sport out. And man, the rest is history. It's a fantastic book. It's a true success through failure story. In this interview, you're going to hear her talk about how she's was insecure. She had a lack of confidence. She felt like she was average and I'm just me. Like I'm not anybody really important here. By the way, if you're watching this on YouTube, you just saw my dog Pax climb up on the chair behind me. So if you're not watching on YouTube, check it out. Go to jimharshajr.com slash YouTube. But in this episode, she talks about things like setting priorities and understanding of what is it that you want to craft your life around. She talks about things that are like the environment of excellence, which I talk about. I've always said, this is a quote that you'll see in my email signature sometimes is, 
We all need a person in our lives who holds us to a higher standard than we believe that we can attain. That's a quote from me, but this is something that she has lived out. And this guy, Kevin Sowery, her coach, believed in a higher level of her, believed in her more than she believed in herself. And we all need those people in our lives. I had that person when I was in college, multiple people, one not the least of whom was a guy named John McGovern. And he, man, he just really ramped up my levels of expectations of myself. Her coach, Kevin Sauer, was that person for her. Amazing individual. Lindsay's story is absolutely engrossing. And the lessons you'll take from it are going to change your life. Here we go. My interview with Lindsay Shoup. First of all, the title, like best title ever of a book, better great than never. I mean, unbelievable. Like, uh, like who is not going to read this book? So for the listeners, we're going to go through the story, but man, you've got to get this book. It is so good. There's so many details in it that you're not going to get from this interview, but we're going to hit on the highlights and we're going to pull some real tangible lessons out of Lindsay's story that you can apply to your life and in whatever part of your life that you're in. So Lindsay, let's just, let's start from the beginning. You grew up in a small town in Virginia, not far from where I'm standing right now. I'm in Charlottesville. What was that like? What was your upbringing like? Most of my mom's family is from there and a lot of them still live there. So I grew up surrounded by my family. You know, we'd have picnics on the weekends and things like that. I grew up in the country. And so whenever it was someone's birthday, we would have a cookout at one of our various, you know, relatives houses and we would all get together. So I did have a lot of family from my mom's side of the family with me growing up. And that's why I say it was really, you know, a team effort for my family to, to raise my brother and me, because sometimes my grandmother would pick us up from school. Sometimes my uncle would pick us up from school or take us to a practice or something like that. So, and my parents would do the same thing for my cousins who kind of live nearby. So you know, my parents, they both worked full time. They both were very busy, you know, often we would leave the house, you know, of course, before eight in the morning. And so it's, you know, just after seven, you drive the 10 miles curvy country road into town to go be dropped off for school. And often one of my parents would, whomever didn't pick us up from school would, you know, often be home after we were in bed for the night when I was very young. I have an older brother and, you know, I talk about this in the book that I spent a lot of time bumping around in the country with a rough and tumble life because I grew up with mostly boys because there weren't really any girls in the area that were my age. I had kind of one female friend that wasn't a school friend and she lived about 45 minutes away at least. So we didn't really get to hang out except for on kind of special occasions. But other than that, played a ton of different sports growing up because they were really occupied us, I guess. I think a lot of kids get into sports because it, you know, it gives their parents something to give their kids something to do, you know? And so that's how I kind of initially got into athletics. So you participate in a ton of sports through high school and you think about maybe playing sports in college, but, but you end up at the University of Virginia with a lot of really great sports programs and it had been a little bit on your radar, but you decide to kind of move past your athletic career, even though I sense that you know, kind of reading your story that that part of you was just that your identity was that of an athlete and you lost that and you go to college and you find yourself, you know, your grades are slipping, staying up late and eating lots of food. And you said you're 30 pounds heavier than, than you had ever been in your life before. And you kind of went to a, a low point in your life. Is that right? Yeah. I loved sports growing up, played year round, you know, something was always involved in something, fall, winter, spring, summer, and then ultimately, even though, you know, I had kind of come through all these sports developing along the way, 
I didn't have the confidence to think I could play any of them in college. Basketball was my main sport. I'm a little over six feet tall now, which now I wish I were two inches taller. I would love to be taller. But when I was younger, particularly in my middle and high school years, I was awkward because I was lanky and I was taller than everyone and clothes never fit just right. I never really found that kind of fit in my skin. So when I did go to the University of Virginia, I got in academically, spent those two and a half years gaining weight, kind of wandering around. Maybe this will make me happy. For the listeners, by the way, she's really smart. I didn't get in on my own. I got in because of wrestling, but I did get a good GPA. But anyway, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Just wanted to put that a little asterisk next to my name there, Lindsay. And so for me, you know, going to the University of Virginia, I pursued it academically and I convinced myself I don't want to play sports anyway, but really it was the confidence. It was like, oh, I don't, I don't want to play sports. Well, that was my fear. You know, that was me being insecure about my abilities because there were coaches that were asking what I was going to do from an athletic standpoint. So I spent two and a half years wandering and taking lots of different classes, which was fantastic because I was searching for what I really enjoyed because that was the one thing I knew I wanted out of whatever it was that I did. Meanwhile, you know, still that kind of lack of confidence led me to, you know, eating Pizza Hut and Frankenberry and, you know, gaining weight. My grades gradually went down. You know, I wasn't going to all of my classes like I should, which was a stark contrast to the person I had been growing up. You know, sports had kept me on track. I never missed class. I didn't like reading very much, so I didn't always do all of the assigned reading, but I always did my homework because, you know, before college, if I didn't, that meant I wouldn't be able to go to practice or I wouldn't be able to go to my next game if I wasn't keeping up with my studies. So subtract sports from the equation. I go to college. Not only do I not have teachers keeping me accountable, but I didn't have teammates or sports, you know, that thing that was giving me that incentive that I really loved, that I wanted to, you know, be the best for, that I needed to be together and organized for. And so, you know, there came a point when, and this is what I consider kind of my version of my rock bottom, you know, everyone has whatever their version of that is, is I took psychology 101 one year and it was supposed to be this easy class at UVA. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to take this. I've never taken a psychology class. Maybe that's what I'll really enjoy. And I ended up going four times the entire semester. And I missed class so many times in a row that I missed a test. And not only did I miss the test, I found out that we even took a test when I went to class finally. And my professor, you know, starts talking about the test that we had taken. So... <laughs> And how he was going to, you know, give us our grades and everything. And so it was so shocking to me that I had not only missed the test, but missed all of the days leading up to and following the test that I'm sure he mentioned that, you know, that was a point where I was just like, oh, crap, I messed up. Like, I might fail this class. I had never gotten below a B plus in my life. And I'd only done that in one subject. And that was history. I had been, you know, an A student throughout middle and high school, like, you know, growing up. So that was a stark contrast for me. And I ended up meeting with him. He took pity on me. I ended up meeting with him in his office and he, you know, cut me a break. He let me take a different version of the test. But I, as soon as I sat down in his office, I just started bawling right there because I knew that I had messed up so badly, you know, and ultimately because of his kindness and my youth, 
you know, I squeaked out with a C minus, but it was still by far the worst I had ever done. You know, reflecting on that, that was a, a moment of what am I doing? You know, what is going on here? You know, and I still didn't know how to fix that and kind of get out of that, the path that I was on until the day that I was at a swim meet to watch some friends swim and randomly bumped into the rowing coach at the University of Virginia. Before we jump into that part, because I think that is a fascinating story. And there's one other thing that I want you to touch on just to give the listeners a perspective of everybody knows you as an Olympic gold medalist, world champion, best on the planet at what you do and extremely fit. And the, the fitness level required to do what you have done is unbelievable. And I've seen it firsthand. But there was a point right around this time that we were just talking about where a friend of yours invited you to run a 5K. And you're thinking to yourself, I'm an athlete. I can run a 5K. Tell us about that. Yeah. (laughs) A friend of mine that I had known for a long time, you know, and I knew that she had kind of taken up running and was enjoying running. So I thought, why not? Let's be clear. I hated running when I was younger. I hated it because I was slow. You know, when I was in elementary school, I was playing in the backyard with the guys. So I wasn't slow then, but measuring it on tracks, you know, running the mile for the physical fitness test, as you get older, playing different sports, I wanted to play in goal because you didn't have to run. Like that's how much I hated running. So my friend invited me to run this 5k and I thought, whatever, it can't hurt. I'll run this 5k. It can't be that bad. You know, mom runs, I'll do it. So I go out to run this 5K, which the starting point of it just happened to be across the street from where I was living at the time. And so I thought it it couldn't be even easier for me. So I meet my friend for this 5K. And long story short is that we line up for the run. We take off for the run and we're chatting. And I'm thinking we're going to just enjoy this run together on this lovely November day. And it was clear very quickly and very short into the race that she was going to run it and run it fast. And what was also clear was that she was a lot faster than me. And she was so much faster than me that she kind of ran off and did her own thing very early on in the race. And I'm just struggling, regretting every moment of having said yes to this. And at that point, I was so unfit that as I come to this first hill in the run, I hear this kind of weird noise over my shoulder. And when I turned to look, it was an elderly gentleman (laughs) who was speed walking and just swished his way up the hill past me. So I was so slow at running and so unfit at that point that an elderly speed walker passed me going up a hill. (laughs) So, you know, when people say, oh, you couldn't have been that unfit. I'm like, no, I was 30 pounds heavier than I'd ever been in my entire life. I could not run a mile, let alone a 5k without stopping to, you know, let a speedwalker, an elderly speedwalker pass me going up this hill. So that was the level of unfit that I was before I discovered my Olympic sport. And you actually kept journals through most of your life, which is so great because I love reading these journals. I love to go back and read the journals that, that I wrote, especially when I was competing. It's just interesting and to see the, the mindset and the words and the transitions that you go through. But you wrote in your journal, you said, who will I be? I wish I had done crew. I wish I were not a lazy bum. Then I may actually have been something. The world will never know. What was that moment like? I remember laying in bed thinking about that was just full of regret, you know? I mean, 
because at that point it was a few years past having graduated from high school and thinking back to moments where my high school basketball coach had said, Hey, these coaches are calling me wanting to know what you're going to do for basketball. And I remember at the time just kind of laughing it off nervously being like, who me, why would they want me? I'm just me. And I always thought of myself as just being average, you know, that I wasn't anything special, no matter what I did. I was a big fish in a little pond. And, you know, when I wanted to initially write a book, I thought I, when I was spinning around titles, I was like, what would the title be? What would the subtitle be? What if I'm just average? You know, that's, I'm just me. That's like a turning point. You're like, I wish, but how do I do that? How do I get out of this? You know? And I mean, the world will never know. And that includes me. Every time I look back on that moment now, I'm like, gosh, you know, if anything were different, everything would be different. So I would never want to go back and interfere in any way, but to be able to be like a fly on the wall and just be like, you got this, it's going to work out. Just keep going, <laughs> like keep hoping that something will right itself, you know, catching those moments when they're happening is really important. Just made me tear up a little bit. <laughs> catching those moments when they're happening where you're like, something's not right. And I know that much. And that's important. You know, recognizing that something isn't going the way that you would like it to go, that you're not acting as the person that you would like to be. That's a part of it. Even if you don't know how to fix it or you don't know how to change the course that you're on, you know, but going, hey, I know that that's not what I want. So let's keep searching. And there's a chance encounter that you happen to have. I think the next day or very shortly after that with coach Kevin Sauer, the head rowing coach of Virginia, who's a good friend of mine, but the listener, I actually called Kevin prior to this interview and Kevin told me, and you alluded to this in the book, Lindsay, that he learned about you because your mom is a hygienist and your mom is Kevin's hygienist. And Kevin learned about you when you were in high school and, and he came and watched you in some of your sports. And he really was like even recruiting you into rowing then. And, and so this was, kind of on your radar. And for the listener, I just want you to think like, you know, yeah, but Lindsay, I don't want you to think this. I, I don't want you to think, yeah, well, Lindsay had this chance encounter. And, you know, what if that chance encounter never happens for me? The chance encounter only happened because you were open to it. Like you had that chance encounter before, but you were open to it at this moment. And so you bump into coach Kevin Sauer at the swimming facility. Yeah. Yeah. At the school gym, you know, and he and I both had the gumption at this point. Cause when there's a swim meet, you know, first of all, he went there to you know, look around, <laughs> I'm sure. Cause he's always looking for opportunity. You know, he loves the sport of rowing. He loves how life-changing it can be. He loves the life lessons that it can teach. And so he's always looking to share that with people. And I'm sure that's what he was doing there at the swim meet. Like, hey, uh, when you're done with swim season, you know, I could picture him having this conversation. <laughs> but he, you know, he and I had both had the gumption at this point. They had the pool itself blocked off from the rest of the gym, including the bathrooms by these like white, you know, temporary fence things that they install. You know, whenever you have events, I'm sure you've seen them if you've ever been to an event. They're about waist high. I hop over it to go use the restroom. He had done the same thing. We were both clearly in a place that we shouldn't have been. And we were the only two people around. And he stopped me. You know, I was on my way out. He was on his way in. And he stopped me and said, hello. And the thing is, he could have just walked on by and been like, that's that kid that I've tried to get to row. And no, that's just not him. 
he's like, Dad Nabbit, I'm going to keep asking, you know, because this is really meaningful. And maybe she'll say yes this time, you know, and and I hadn't seen him in a while, at least two or two and a half years. I don't recall him talking to me for two or two and a half years. I actually found letters from Virginia Rowing unopened under my bed at my parents' house years later. You know, so apparently they had sent mail along the way. That's how turned off to it. And the fact that I don't remember that happening just goes to show how closed off to that opportunity I was at the time. Yeah, the teacher will appear when the student is ready. Yeah, you know, first thing he said was, hey, Lindsay, it's never too late to row. And I was just like, you know, I'd really like that. And I think he was shocked that I said that. And he pulled out this like wrinkled business card. Like he had been sitting on it in his wallet as if he had put it in there two and a half years prior, just for me, you know, I had saved it that long. Gives it to me, said, hey, give me a call. At this point, I could have still just been like, oh, you know, and and not followed up on that. So there was still room for me to be closed off to this opportunity. The ball was still in my court. So I had to still do something to pursue that opportunity. I had to reach out and call him and, and I called him up. And in that moment, in that meeting, he told me that I would actually be meeting with a different coach, the novice coach who would coach people that had never rode in college or pot- and potentially never rode before. But she was unavailable when I was available. So he went out of his way as the head coach of one of the top four or five women's rowing programs in the country, in the history of women's NCAA rowing, right? This person went out of his way to meet with me, to show me around, to make sure that I really wanted to be a part of the team. So I did. Like he took time out of his day to come and meet with me. So you have this opportunity to walk on to one of the best rowing programs in the country. And for the listener, I I want you to understand that this is a scary thing, even for somebody who has the mindset of an Olympic champion, and maybe you didn't have that mindset or was in you then, but this you know, this experience, this sport brought it out of you. But you said in your journal, uh, you said, I assumed that they would be better than me. And maybe this was even part of your journal. Maybe this was just certainly in the book. You said, I assumed that they would be better than me, stronger than me, faster than me, more capable than me. How could I possibly be good enough? I've never even done this before. What was I thinking? First of all, you know, Lizzie, I want you to respond to that and kind of tell us what you were thinking at that moment and how you moved through that. But for the listener, you have that thing too. Like whatever that is for you right now in your life, you're assuming that everybody else is better than you or stronger than you or faster than you or more capable or smarter or whatever it is. They have the degree that you don't have or the money or the connections. Like you have that excuse just like Lindsay did. Lindsay, how did you handle that? It was honestly the people. Those were my thoughts on my very first day of practice when, because after I met with Kevin, the head coach, and he showed me around, he said, don't worry about trying to row, just do some physical activity because remember I was, you know, 5k unfit at this time and um, showed up at my first day of practice in what was about a month, month and a half later from the point that I bumped into him. And I walk in and when I realized, okay, I, I knew I would not be the most experienced person there. How could I possibly be? I'd never done it before. You know, I gave myself one more out. You know, I almost tried to run away on that very first day. So again, I still had to be willing and open to that opportunity. Like I had to show up on the first day, even though the plan was for me to show up and not only show up, but actually open the door and walk in 
because I almost tried to turn around and not do that. So there were many points when I still could have, you know, tucked, turned tail and run away. Before I opened the doors and, you know, finally officially showed up for practice, I looked through the window in the door, like the cutout in the door to be like, okay, let me give this one more shot. And when I looked, that's what, you know, what you were just talking about. That's what, you know, put me off again. I was like, oh my God, I'm literally seeing everything I've imagined. They are that big. They are that much more fit than me. They all look like they're confident and enjoying one another and laughing and talking. Look how outgoing they are, you know? And when I finally did go and open the doors and walk in, it was that awkward embarrassment that you get. You know, when you're a kid, you're like, uh, should I stand by the wall? Should I pretend like I'm going to go get a drink or find a place to sit? You know, (laughs) when you know no one there. And so then finally, I think, you know, one of the women that was there, she saw that, you know, and she was just one of those people that walked over and introduced herself. You know, she was, you know, the social person on the team. And when she did that and she told me her name, just by telling me her name and her asking me mine, it made me feel a little bit more comfortable. And because it wasn't 20 at once, it was one and then another one and then a few more that like gradually let me shed some layers and kind of warm to the situation, you know, literally, you know how you get nervous and everything gets cold and hot all at the same time. You're like sweating, but you feel cold somehow. And (laughs) that's how it felt. You know, I was 20 years old at that point, but I still felt like this insecure kid in that moment. And so you you join the team and you you jump on the erg and you start to learn the pain and suffering that goes into a sport like rowing. How did you take to that? And talk to us about sort of that journey of those first couple of years in the sport, kind of getting your footing. I didn't know how to push myself very hard at the time because I'd never done a sport that you train through endurance. The race is not that long. It's not a marathon. You're not rowing for hours. You're not rowing for even a half an hour but you're training as if it's an endurance sport. So the training itself is something that you really have to just gradually take on like one little layer at a time. So I remember within the first five days that I was on the team, they told us that we were going to do a 2k, which is this benchmark test in rowing. And my plan was to do what the person next to me did. So I went with my teammates. I sit down next to one of my teammates in this small group and I just do what she did. And when I finished, I was like, okay, we're done. And she was just absolutely white, you know? So with my eyes, I see what it was like to actually push yourself on something like a rowing machine, not there's a ball over there, get to it first, you know, some where you don't even think about it. It was the first time that it was just like, okay, just go. And you're kind of like, what does that even mean? And over time, the more often that you do that, the more you're like, okay, well, I'll just do that a little sooner. Like that way that I felt when I was doing that, I'll just maybe next time do it 10 seconds sooner than I did the day before, you know, and periodically, you know, I would literally just sit down next to someone who was a little bit better than me and do what they did and learn as much as I possibly could from whatever it was that they were doing. What I love about rowing is that the technique and the physical fitness If you're rowing on the water or rowing on the rowing machine, you know, they come together, but you do so many other things to get fit for rowing that you can actually separate the technique and the physical fitness a little bit more obviously. So if any one point of your overall rowing skill is, you know, struggling, you can still improve in other ways. 
And it's very methodical in some of those other improvements because they're very measurable. And, you know, you can program them in, whether it's weightlifting or running stairs or literally running or biking or doing yoga. Like you can see yourself getting better. You can physically see yourself changing. You can mentally feel yourself changing. You can see, you know, you're laughing more. You can see all these positive improvements. And so then you keep working on these other things. So through the whole process, there's always something that's getting better. And so you're winning in some way, like there are enough positive things happening that help you manage the things that you're really struggling with too. And that's something that, that keeps you hungry for all of it because you're like, okay, I'm getting better over here. That's definitely happening. I'm seeing all of these things that are positively impacting my life beyond the sport itself. My friends, my, you know, being more social, kind of coming out of my shell, being more confident was a huge change. My parents noticed that I literally just stood up taller. My posture was better. So then that makes you want to just be even better at that thing because you're connecting your life improvement to this sport. And when you are willing to put in more time because it's making you as a human being better, you're willing to even more manage those things that you're like, well, I'm not the best rower yet, but I can be and I want to be and I'm willing to deal with the down parts because there's so many upsides and I'm becoming a better human being because of it. And Kevin sees so much potential in you. He continues to push you, continues to put you in situations where you're getting better and you're being pushed. And you saw significant gains very quickly, very early in your career, you know, in the first year, first two years. At what point did you start to think national team? At what point did you start to think Olympics? You know, Kevin planted those seeds. He was really my first spirit animal. Or maybe my mom, you know, because she was still cleaning his teeth. And he had mentioned to her at some point very early on that he thought I could be good enough for the national team someday. And she told me that because my mom keeps nothing to herself, (laughs) you know. So she mentioned that to me and that kind of planted a seed of like, oh, I didn't know anything about the national team at the time. I had just started rowing and... Four months later, you know, by the summer of that same year, so by May, June of the year that I started rowing, so five, six months later, I was in Spain doing a study abroad program that I had signed up for prior to my even learning that I was going to go row, you know, so I didn't have any concept of how rowing really worked in the grand scheme of things. So I literally just by sitting down and doing whatever the person next to me was doing and kind of chasing that becoming a little bit better each day. It took me from, you know, day one novice to one of the fastest people on the team within a year's time, which is a very large, steep improvement. So after Kevin said that to my mom, he started saying things and doing things that kind of showed that he saw a little bit more in me too, like encouraging me to sit with even faster people on the team and comparing me to some of the top people on the team. And when my numbers started to show up, better. You know, he started challenging me a little bit more by being like, Hey, sit down next to these two people and just do whatever they do for as long as you can. And they happened to be the two fastest, you know, ERC scores on the team at the time. So they were two of the fastest physically on the rowing machine on the team. And I couldn't keep up with them for the entire practice, but for part of it, you know, which was me going, Oh, I didn't even know that I could do that. But it was really through Kevin's kind of seed planting and then little bits of encouragement along the way, which obviously my teammates at UVA kind of pulled out of me too, because we just had fun going fast together, trying to figure that out. The national team 
became something that I wanted to do because a, the national team coach showed up at practice one day to watch someone else on our team. And so then it made it real. It manifested like, Oh, there is a national team here. Like this is a sport that is an Olympic sport that races at international events. So the pieces started to kind of come together and this might sound strange, but it was my logic. This is how my brain worked was I want to be the best that I can possibly be at this sport. And Virginia has a really fantastic program. So how do you become the best that you can be? It's be with the best people possible in the best scenario, which is the national team, right? That would be the best scenario. And then I thought, well, if they don't want me, then I'll just figure out, you know, what the next best scenario would be and ask them. Lucky for me. I got invited to a national team camp. So that was not a senior national team camp. You know, this was very early on in the early stages, kind of the novice team for the national team, but it was find a way to start getting involved in that system because that would make me the best I could be. And for the listener, I want you to think about like, what is this for you, right? We talk about the environment of excellence in my coaching program. Like who are the people that you need to be around who are next level that are going to push you and help you be that next version of yourself, that best version of yourself. Quick interruption. Hey, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to get the notes, quotes, and links in the action plan from this episode. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. That's jimharshawjr.com slash action to get your free copy of the action plan. Now back to the show. So Lindsay, you We'll fast forward and catch, you know, skip over some steps because there's so much to your story. And again, for the listener, I encourage you to buy the book. But what was it like to win your first world championship and then take us to Beijing? Yeah. <laughs> Within three years from the time that I picked up an oar, started rowing at the University of Virginia, I was sitting on the start line at my first world championships, which turned out very poorly for us, actually. We were on trajectory to bring home two medals in these two events that I was racing. So I raced two events at my first world championships, which I need to really make sure that I'm correct on this, but it might've been the first time that two American women raced two Olympic level events at a world championships. And so that was kind of the start of this transition, this change for the national team. So it was a big deal. And, you know, obviously there are many steps in there. There were many downs. I was almost booted from the national team system before that even happened. And lo and behold, here I was the best person in my discipline for the team in the country. You know, I was the best starboard in the country that year, went from the bottom almost cut to the best starboard in the country that year. We lost, we got fourth and sixth in the two events that we had entered that I got to race. And our coach sat us down in the fall, winter, before the next world championships happened, kind of mid-season before the next worlds. And the thing that he did was we sat down, we watched the Olympic Games, which would have been the 2004 Olympic Games. We watched two races, and it was the women's eight and the women's pair. And this one particular country, Romania, won both of those events, and two of the women raced both of them. So in the history of women's rowing, in the history of rowing period, very few people have ever won two Olympic gold medals in the same Olympics. You literally can't enter more than two. It physically is too draining. The schedule doesn't permit it. And so doubling up for, is, first of all, a challenge. Meddling in two events is a huge challenge. Only a few people have done that. To win two events, I think five women have done it in the last 20 or 30 years. You know, So it's insanely challenging. Anyway, so we watch this, we see the, this country make history again, you know, 
And he said, first of all, when it comes to the Olympic games, you have to be good enough to win, to come away with a medal at all, you know, just to make it that far is a significant undertaking. And he said, if that's really what you want, that's really what you do. You have to visualize it. You have to see it. You have to really want that. And then every day prepare and let your preparation become your confidence toward that. And along with that preparation, you have to control what you can and ignore the rest, not pretend like it doesn't exist, you know, and live in a la la land, but just remove your fixation because that's just diverted energy that you need to prepare so that your confidence will grow. And that was a turning point that by the next year, we went from this demoralizing loss to winning our first world championships, breaking the world record. And that was the first of 11 straight years that the United States did not lose that particular event at the world championship or Olympic levels, 11 straight years. And that was the turning point. Control what you can, ignore what you can't. Preparation is confidence. Wow. And that's, that's success through failure embodied. And then you, you start experiencing the success now at the world level and talk to us about going to Beijing and winning the Olympic gold medal. I, uh, taking off from the start, crossing the middle of the race, you know, crossing the finish line. I have three very distinct points of memory. The race is around six minutes long. And I remember about 45 seconds of it because for me personally, I pushed myself so hard that, you know, all the blood goes to my major muscles. I can't hear, I can't think any more than just yes, more in my brain, which was a phrase that I taught myself, discovered over the years, practiced, and then taught myself that helped me stay focused and help me push myself beyond the point of, you know, I guess, normal human thresholds <laughs> or my prior thresholds, push me beyond my prior thresholds, I should say. But I remember at the finish line when you're rowing, there's this bubble line. So to mark the finish line, they obviously have a laser line that's a perfectly straight line that they use where they also take a photo in case there's a photo finish. But there's also an aerator of some kind that emits air so that there's a bubble line in the water that you can literally see it as you row over it. And I remember the way these bubbles looked as the boat went by or went over them. And I remember thinking to myself, like even, I think it was just like a, a reflex. I look over my left shoulder and I look over my right shoulder to make sure no one was behind us. And I'm putting the pieces together, trying to like come back to some semblance of, I mean, my brain isn't working right now, but I think no one's behind us. And the race is over because I saw the finish line. So if the race is over and no one is behind us, we must have won, which means we won the Olympics and it's the Olympics. I know you're tired, but you have to find a way to cheer right now. You have to find a way. And this all happened in like a split second, you know, but that was the thought that went through my brain as I'm like, uh, <laughs> totally disoriented by this effort, you know, and I don't know that any Olympic athlete will ever be be able to perfectly quantify how it feels to be there. Because I think that, you know, I've talked to enough other athletes that I don't think any one of us thinks that we're anything special, you know, that we're human beings that discovered something we loved somewhere along the way and pursued them to the utmost because they meant that much to us. And something that I think is really interesting to find that I've learned even more over the years is that it's the athletes who do it for the fact that the pure and simple fact that they want to be better every day and that they want to experience joy rather than relief, you know, at this culmination that do the best and then kind of come away with the best 
perception of it, you know, because then it's a part of your life. And then there isn't this like major letdown. And now what? It's okay. So there's a finite amount of time that I can be an Olympic athlete, but I can spend my entire life being better and enjoying that process. Lindsay, your story is phenomenal. I encourage the listeners to, to definitely grab the book and dive deeper into it. I, I want to ask you this. The, the lesson from your story is it's not too late. It's never too late. What do you say to the listener who maybe in their mind, they're interpreting this and saying, well, it is too late for me, right? Like, you know, I missed my chance to do my crew, right? And, and maybe it's their decades past that thing, right? Maybe they might be thinking, well, it is too late for me. You know, what do you say to that person who's past their quote unquote prime, maybe for athletics, maybe they have regrets even about a, maybe a failed marriage or a failed business or a missed opportunity. What do you say to that listener who is feeling that and wants to believe it's not too late for me for that next thing? Yeah. You know, being willing to let go of that regret, you know, like that was my regret point was, gosh, if only I'd ever, if I'd done this before, you know, like I wish I'd done this before we, you can't control time. You can't control the past. You can't control other people but you can decide how you want to feel at the end of the day and the way that you want to emotionally live your life and go, okay, what do I need to do to be able to live that way? And what is it that allows me to live that way? And I, you know, you, there is a specific example of that for each person. And part of that is prioritizing what is important to me. And, you know, for me, what's important to me is my health and well-being. And whatever I am doing that allows me to prioritize health and well-being, because that allows me to be a better person, kind of emanate energy around the, in my own life and for other people. Because, you know, we resonate with one another. We can impact people's lives simply by walking past them down the street. You know, and if Kevin hadn't walked past me, you know, or had walked past me in the AFC that day and not positively resonated with me as a human being, you and I might not be sitting here having this conversation. And there are certainly zillions of things that would be very different in my life. But that willingness to have that stop thought, have that moment of, it isn't too late, you know? It just isn't. <laughs> whatever that thing is, stop it right there and go, okay, what do I need to do to live the way that I want to live? What's an action item that the listener can take, let's say in the next 24 to 48 hours to start moving towards that next thing for them, right? One thing that they can do, they, they've absorbed this story and they're saying, okay, it's not too late for me. I'm going to get to work. What can they do? What's, what's one step or one action item they can do in the next day or two? Prioritize. You know, that was actually one of the biggest things that I did when I retired from international competition was, okay, let me describe the environment in which I want to live, you know, that would allow me to live the way that I want to live. So it's, it's about setting priorities and knowing what's truly important to you. Some people know what that is immediately. I know what's important to me, what is most important to me. Some people don't. So then you just start describing how it is you want to live. Do you want to live in a warm place? You know, do you want to live in a cold place? Is it absolutely imperative that you live near your family? You know, those things are priorities. And so then you can be realistic about what it takes to do that. You know, you can put them in place order because the more important these things are to you, the more willing you are to A, deal with the crapola times, <laughs> but B, you're more willing to pour resources into doing that and living that way and being that person. And the more resources you are willing to put in, the more you're going to get out of it. That's just how it works, you know, and 
yeah, we might not all end up at the Olympic Games, but we sure as heck will get a whole lot closer to the Olympic Games when we prioritize and we're willing to do those things. Yeah. So for the listener, I mean, take action on this. I mean, this is real stuff. You can apply it to your life. And for my clients who are out there listening, they're shaking their heads because this is, you know, the, the prioritizing and, you know, setting the values of like, what do I want my life to be like? Where do I want to live? How do I want to be close to family? Things like that. Like, this is where we start. This is about creating that framework or that structure in your life. So anybody can do this. Anybody listening, you can take action on this, like, as soon as you're done listening to this episode. So Lindsay, Excellent advice. Amazing story. The book is amazing. Good. Did you have something you wanted to add? Yeah. I mean, what I was going to add to the priorities thing is that, you know, when you prioritize that exposes to you, you got to write that stuff down because then you can literally see, we all do this. We all take on that extra thing. Oh, like, yeah, sure. We have a hard time saying no. Sometimes high performers, people that like to help people, we have a hard time saying, no, I can't do that because you want to be involved in this thing that might very well align with what you want to do. But when you write it down and you set your priorities, there's a finite amount of time in a your day, in your life, that will help you kind of carve out the amount of time that you truly need. You got to be realistic about those demands. And that forces you to be like, okay, I need to be realistic in this amount of time. If I want to be able to spend this amount of time with my family and take care of myself at the same time, how much time do I really have to do this thing? And how much time am I willing to put toward this thing? You know, and that's the big piece of it is we think a lot of times that in order to be very, you know, quote, successful in our lives, we have to sell the farm. You know, you cannot. And I highlight this double red solid line. You cannot sacrifice your physical and mental health and well-being to do that because you will never be successful if you do that, because you will not be capable of producing, let alone managing the ups and downs that will co- that will happen along the way. So among your list of priorities, whatever it is, you have to carve out time for yourself to take care of yourself physically so that you can take care of yourself mentally. Because the mental piece that I speak of is, can you find joy in it? You have to keep joy. And something I think a lot of people see when they look at Olympic athletes is the harder it gets, the higher you go, it's just so rigorous. But really, I would say it's the people that enjoy it the most. You have to really be so tied to it and find joy in it to be able to do that. Because otherwise, you're going to fold a whole lot earlier. Because when you're not enjoying it, you won't find the value in it the same way. You know, I talk in one of my podcast episodes about the difference between hard work and inspired action. And that's what we're talking about. Whether it's in athletics or any other area of your life, like what is important to you? Focus on those things and and you're going to have to say no, or at least not now or not yet to some other things while you focus on what is most important to you and crafting your life around that. Lindsay, absolutely incredible advice. And I think that really sums up, you know, the biggest lessons in your story. Where can the listeners go to find you, follow you on social media, buy your book, et cetera? You can find me at Lindsay Dare Shoop, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y. People always ask that. Lindsay Dare Shoop. Uh, Instagram is one of my favorites, but you can find me on my website too. If you have any questions, you can message me there. Book, you can get anywhere, but easy on Amazon. Amazon has it in ebook, paperback, audiobook, and if you like a hardback, you can get that as well there. Excellent. For the listener, as always, we'll have those links in the action plan. Go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. Lindsay, thank you for making time to come on the show. Oh, it's been a blast, Jim. Thanks so much. 
Thanks for listening. If you want to apply these principles into your life, let's talk. You can see the limited spaces that are open on my calendar at jimharshawjr.com slash apply, where you can sign up for a free one-time coaching call directly with me. And don't forget to grab your action plan. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. And lastly, iTunes tends to suggest podcasts with more ratings and reviews more often. You would totally make my day if you give me a rating and review. Those go a long way in helping me grow the podcast audience. Just open up your podcast app if you have an iPhone, do a search for success through failure, select it, and then scroll the whole way to the bottom where you can leave the podcast a rating and a review. Now, I hope this isn't just another podcast episode for you. I hope you take action on what you learned here today. Good luck and thanks for listening.